let's pray as we get into the word. Father, we, we thank you for your amazing goodness and love to us. Thank you for your holy word. We invite you to come and to speak. Holy Spirit, we open our hearts to you. We ask that your word would bear fruit in each one's life here. We love you, Lord. Help us to live well for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so, and I am in control. This feels good to be in control. (laughs) I won't comment. All right, so I've taken on many projects this spring, more than I really wanted to. And uh, I, yeah, image of God, see the image, live the image. You know, when, when, uh, when God created Adam, he put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. And, uh, and so uh, we've been living in this house for nine years without a garden. And uh, so we put together a garden. Can you, can you see the vision? Yeah. It's going to happen, right? And here it is. It's happening, and not only two garden boxes, but two with the extra uh, soil, two rows back there, which will eventually become raspberries and strawberries because I love eating off the land. And I want to put those in my pancakes. All right? One of my other projects this summer... Yes, I installed a new toilet. Did you, did you know, and just, just a tip, if you have a counter over the back of your toilet tank, make sure you get the right height. <laughs> I had to do this twice. All right. Did you know that t- recently Tesla and Microsoft teamed up to create the world's most technologically advanced toilet. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know I, I would not have believed it if I didn't see it with my own eyes. But there it is on the box. Elon gated. <laughs> it's true. And in case you think I photoshopped this, I do not have access to Photoshop. I do not use Photoshop. And uh, in case you think that I (laughs) I took this out of context, well, here's the box to to prove it. There it is, elongated. And please don't ask me how John Denver got mixed up in all this. (laughs) But uh, hey, toilet humor works every time. All right, let's get on to the word. Uh, Genesis, Genesis one. Uh, you know when we Genesis one. Actually, I'll, I'll just get right into this here. Let's let's read Genesis one, twenty six to twenty eight. Uh, you know that we were created in God's image, and somehow this has to do with us. Uh, And God said, 
Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. All right, so we were created in God's image. Uh, this is a passage that's been much discussed over the centuries. And we all, every reader of this passage agrees that this has something important to say about what it means to be human. But there hasn't been a whole lot of agreement about what this actually means. Uh, some, uh, so uh, there's actually more views than this, but I'm, uh, three basic views on this. This is your theology lesson. Uh, that the image is about relationship, uh, God in uh, relationship with God, relationship with others. Uh, another view that is a functional image, the image is about a vocation to a task. God, it means that God has called us to have dominion over the earth, to rule, etc. And a third view that the image means that we're made to be like God in some way. And uh, so I, I did my... Um, I did my thesis, or I used this idea in my thesis, spent a few chapters on it. Uh, and my proposal is that the image is a lead role in the drama of creation. If you think about history as a drama that God has written, that God is producing, all right? and uh, he is the author, the world is our stage, and to be... The image is to be an actor on the stage, the embodied actor. And what does it mean to be an actor? It, it means to take this script and to embody it on the stage. All right, It's not just a story. It's one that you live in and participate in. And so uh, what does this mean? It means you have an important part to play in this drama that God is producing. You are his hands. You are his feet. You are his mouthpiece. Uh, I've summarized this in an alliteration, sonship, shaping, and sending, that uh, you were made for relationship. You were made to, with God, your creator. You were made for, uh, you were, created also for shaping, to conform to God's will for our lives. Uh, you know, uh, when, we, when we read the story, not only is there, I mean, you get to Genesis chapter 2, it's all about relationship, right? But, but chapter, and really chapter 3 as well. But... Uh, you find two trees in the garden. And God says, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right from the beginning, God had rules. God had a vision for how we should live and how we should not live. And what does this tree mean? Well, the tree of life 
is about wisdom and fellowship with God. All right. Uh, throughout the scripture, uh, life has been about fellowship with God and with his Holy Spirit, who is the life giver. Uh, what is the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Well, this one is a little harder, but basically it means to choose for myself. What is good for me? What's bad for me? And we think of Samson. I want you to think about Samson, the, the last named judge in the book of Judges. The most powerful, physically, the most powerful judge of all. If anyone could save them from the Philistines, it was Samson. And yet, Samson was a man of the flesh. What did he say? She, he, he looked at the, the Philistine woman and says, She is right in my eyes. I will decide for myself what I want. Tree of life, it's about him. You're pursuing God, fellowship with him. He is life. Knowledge of good and evil, I decide for myself. So here's Samson saying, She is right in my eyes. And then all of Israel followed. His story ends in chapter 16 of Judges. And beginning in chapter 17, you have the darkest period of the dark ages of Israel. When everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Following after Samson and following after Adam. And in fact, if you read Judges 19 and compare that with Genesis 19, you will see. The, the, the author was saying, Israel has become Sodom and Gomorrah. They're parallel stories. And everything that was happening in Sodom and Gomorrah, this is Israel today. Choosing what was right in their own eyes. So God had, God had, a, God created us for relationship with himself. He also has a particular shape of our lives uh, that uh, that he is calling us to and sending. From the beginning, we had a mission to rule over the earth, to have dominion over it, and to rule and subdue it. You know, for those of you think, who think that Adam and Eve were just sitting around in the garden eating fruit, petting the animals, <laughs> uh, God told them to rule and subdue the earth. Is there something wild that they had to subdue? In the original creation. Okay. But they were there to rule over the earth. But So we're, we have a mission on earth. We are part of a story much larger than ourselves. We're not our own. To be his image is to be his embodied agents here on earth. You are his hands and his feet and his mouth and his eyes. And there are so many applications we can make from this, but I want to focus in on two applications today. See the image. See the value that God has invested in each human being when you look at a human being. See the image. And secondly, live the image. God has respond has invested responsibility in each of us, in each of you. Uh, you're here to image God to the world. So uh, as we read in Genesis 1, we see, uh, and, and really also in, in 5 and in Genesis 9, that, uh, that the Bible 
democratizes the image. In the ancient world, the image referred to the king and only the king. Only the king was the image of God. Only was the king was the son of God. And the Bible says, no, no. All people, male and female, are God's image. And not just men, women as well. So let's think about this. When you're rich and for most, if not all of you here, you are richer than you think. You are far richer than you think. When you're rich, do you look down on the poor? Are you tempted to look down on the poor? When you walk through the streets of North and Winnipeg and you see the homeless on Smith, do you see the image? When you're poor, and most of us will know some people who are richer than ourselves. When you're poor and you're tempted to commoditize the rich, you look at the rich and you see money. I mean, that's what the poor do to us. You've dehumanized them. Do you see persons created in God's image? What about educated versus uneducated? Whichever side you're on, do you have this us and them mentality? Are they uneducated and therefore worthless? Are they educated and therefore snobbish or perhaps unspiritual? You have to sell your soul for every degree you get? Well, why do we think in us and them terms. How about extrovert versus introvert? How many of you here are introverts? Yeah. Well, good for you for having the courage to put up your hand. Thank you. <laughs> Bless you. I, I'm an introvert. I grew up as an introvert, although in the last test I did a few weeks ago, I came out slightly extroverted, and I think it lied. Uh, but... Uh, if someone is the life of the party, uh, if someone is, is really outgoing, popular, are, are they just a status symbol? If I can be friends with this person, somehow I'll feel better about myself, maybe I'll be okay. Uh, if someone is shy or introverted, socially awkward, are they less than? Do you ignore them? Avoid them? Do you see the image? We can go on and on about this us and them mentality. You know, one of the ironies of our culture is that we talk so much about equality and we talk so much about inclusivity, but it's a culture built on where, where everything is cast in terms of us versus them. And if you're one of them, we hate you and we will cancel you. And we'll do everything we can to destroy you. That, that's, that's, not, that's not... The real issue is, do you see what Jesus sees? Do you see in each person 
that crosses your path, do you see the image? Do you, do you view them through the eyes of Jesus? This is a human being made to represent God here on earth. And Jesus says, as you've done to the least of these brothers of mine, you've done it to me. You've done it to me. So who is it in your life that you have the hardest time loving? How well do you love them? Do you see the image? This is a painting by Rembrandt called The Return of the Prodigal Son. It's uh, become my favorite painting of all. And The Return of the Prodigal Son was one of his last works when he was close to his death. And here we have three main figures. The younger son who returns destitute, stripped of all of his pride and dignity, but he is repentant and he finds himself comforted in the arms of the father. And we have a second figure, the father who embraces his son to welcome him home. And thirdly, we have the older son who stands off to the side, aloof, uninviting, unwilling to join the party, judging, uh, judging of the kind that, that Jesus tells us not to do, always pushes away from relationship. And this is the difference between the good kind of judging that Paul tells us to do and the bad kind of judging that Jesus tells us to do is that one of them invites to relationship and the other pushes away. So there's the three main figures. There are three other figures that we don't need to talk about, but I want you to notice the father. He was physically blind, and yet somehow in his blindness, he was able to see. He was able to see deeply. He was able to see the image. He was able to see in the spirit. Uh, in another painting by Rembrandt at the end of his life, one that he never finished, we have Simeon and the child Jesus. Here again, we have an old man who is physically blind. And in fact, if you, I'm not sure how well you can see this, but his hands, his hands holding the baby like this because he's now crippled. He is, he is blind and crippled. And yet, in his blindness, he is able to see and recognize the Messiah. And uh, Henry Nouwen says that, uh, that this is Rembrandt as an old man reflecting on himself. How as a youth, he, he, he had his eyes open. He lived a very, really, he was a prodigal son. Uh, but now, as an old man, Rembrandt had learned to see. By contrast, we have the older son 
with his eyes wide open, watching, observing, taking in every detail critically. I'm sure he noticed everything. The father is dirtying his robe, embracing this smelly son who had returned. And he missed what his father could see. It was the image. This precious son who had returned home. Uh, one of the most contentious issues of our day involved the so-called LGBTQ community. I know there are more letters and numbers than that, but I can't. I'm too old to remember all that stuff. At one point, it ceases to be language and it becomes catechism. But, church, you have to understand that not all LGBT people are activists and not all of them are hostile. And as a church, as a follower of Jesus, you're called to love the person in front of you. Do you see the image? Do you see? What would it mean to image Jesus Christ to such a person? When you are face to face. Now, what about the activists? When you're face to face with an LGBT activist, ask yourself, do you want them to come home to the Father one day? And after their encounter with you, what image of the Father will they have in their minds? Will it be one that they will want to come back to one day? In a recent conversation with some same-sex attracted people, what I'm hearing is that they're lonely. And, and this was, these were Christians. Uh, what I'm hearing is that they're lonely. They need Christian community. They're not activists. They love Jesus. They want to follow him. They read scripture and they agree homosexuality is wrong. And they did not choose to be same-sex attracted. And yet they are rejected by their church. They desperately want and need Christian fellowship, but they're rejected again and again and again. People tell them to repent, but they don't want to be close enough to know what it's like to be them. So let me ask you this. Do you remember the day when you made a decision to be sexually attracted to the opposite sex? How many of you had to make that decision? This is not something you choose. It is something that is thrust upon you by life. And you know what? This, there's all kinds of factors that can play into that. We won't get into that. But, but what would it be like to be 13 and, and told that your the sexual feelings that you experience and attractions, well, you need to repent of that. What would that be like? 
Now, picture yourself being same-sex attracted, not by choice, but growing up that way. And you grow up in a church because it, where, where most people think that uh, you're sinful because of the way you feel. And they reject you. Or they simply tell you you need to repent. So I, I want, I want to, to walk a middle line here, to be welcoming but not affirming. In fact, I, I told my gay friend that not all churches are like the one you experienced. Some churches can be welcoming, but not affirming. I hope that Calvary is one of those. I really hope so. There are other churches that are both welcoming and affirming, but they have to do some fancy hermeneutical gymnastics to work around some parts of the Bible. Uh, if we... If we take the Bible seriously, we can't be affirming. But we can love. If, in fact, uh, if we take the Bible seriously, we will love. What kind of conditions would you put on such a person before you will love them? What kind of conditions would Jesus put on such a person before he will love them? Suppose a cohabiting couple moved into the house next door to you. Young couple, guy and a girl, not married, living together. What would, you, would you go over and introduce yourself? Hey, uh, my name's Elmer, and I'm your next-door neighbor. Uh, Hi, Harry. Hello, Jane. Welcome to the neighborhood. Oh, by the way, did you know that premarital sex is a sin? Um, yeah, but hey, let us know as soon as you repent and we'll have you over for coffee. No, no, I hope that's not us. I hope that's not us. How is it different with a homosexual? How is it different? with the transgender. Can we love them right where they are? I hope so. Can we see the image that Jesus sees in the tax collectors and the sinners and the prostitutes? I should follow my notes. Okay. So we're called to see the image, to live the image. How do we live the image? How do we image God to someone else? And I realize we're getting late here. I want to uh, be quick with the rest of this. Uh, Not long ago, I encountered a gender transitioning student. First time I've been uh, before such a person uh, in my life. As I listen to his story of not feeling like being a man is quite uh, who he is, uh, not really knowing who or what he is, starting to explore the possibility of transitioning to being a woman, going through the ordeal of coming out to his family members, to his friends. Um, And I realize that this is rubbing up against uh, some of our theology. But alongside our theology of 
sex and gender, we need to have a theology of love. Don't you agree? Right alongside of it, holding the two together, a theology of love. And I said a couple of things to him in our conversation. One thing I said, hey, I can appreciate that this has been a really difficult process for you. And it has. And he appreciated that. And, and my hope is that he'll walk away feeling like, hey, he understands me. And he will be one step closer to becoming a committed, wholly surrendered disciple of Jesus. Uh, <clears throat> empathy is to understand, <clears throat> to understand at a heart level and then to communicate that understanding. Hey, I get it. This is really hard. It, it's, it's life-giving. This is one way <clears throat> you can love people well. <clears throat> Another thing I said to him, I want you to know, <clears throat> I want you to know that God loves you right where you are. He had some, uh, some Christian background. He loves you right where you are. Does this person have to change before God loves him? Do we, do we not have a Bible that says, for God so loved the world? That, uh, the, a gospel that says, while we were yet sinners. Okay. Romans 2, 4 says, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. How can you demonstrate God's kindness in a tangible way that will reach their heart to someone who needs to repent. Jesus had compassion on people that he met, and when he was moved with compassion, he did something to relieve their suffering. And so we have empathy and we have compassion. <clears throat> empathy is to understand them and communicate that understanding. Compassion is to care enough to act in order to relieve suffering. And both of these are important. And both of these are part of what it means to live the image, to image God. You are the ambassador of Jesus Christ to this world. Live the image. I realize that uh, I took the application of this message in a very specific direction. As I close, I, I want to broaden this out a little bit. I want you to, to think. Every time that you are face-to-face -face with another human being, you're confronted with the image of God. It's an interesting that... Uh, I'll, I'll move on. You're confronted with the image of God. One loved by him, one who is important to him, uh, one who, at least in a passive sense, represents Jesus in your life. Our call is to image God to one another and to the world around us. So ask yourself, whom have I mistreated lately? Who have I not loved well? 
Is there anyone that I've sinned against and I haven't reconciled with them yet? Who do you have in your life who is difficult or needy? And how can we image Jesus to them in a way that makes him attractive? Uh, As the worship team comes up, uh, I want to pray for you. The altars are open for prayer. But for many of you, your altar call is out there. Who do you need to go to? Who do you need to reconcile with? Who do you need to image Jesus to? Uh, For others of you, this message may be hitting close to home. Uh, Whether it's you or someone else in your life, uh, some hard things that you're dealing with. I'm happy to pray for you. There are people who will come up who are happy to pray with you. Uh, uh, Let me just pray over you as we close. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that uh, you chose to come in the flesh to image God to us and to restore us and to redeem us. Thank you that you're here in our lives. And thank you for your spirit who lives in us and for this calling to image God to our world. Will you give us eyes to see? Will you give us eyes to see? Will you give us hearts to love? Bless us today in Jesus' name.